Welcome to Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle. I'm Bobby Osinski, and this is a show all about music, music production, and the music business. My guest this week is producer and engineer Gareth Jones. First of all, there's been a rise in fake artists. Yeah, streaming gives way to a lot of ways that an artist can really be someone else. This can come in a number of different ways. A really big thing when it comes to fake artists are playlist aliases. You may not realize this is happening, but there may be recommendations for you to go check out a particular artist that maybe you never heard of before, but that artist is actually another one. So what ends up happening is it's a fake artist on the playlist that gets pointed back to someone else. This is happening more and more, and obviously it's really upsetting consumers. Then there's something called Vocaloids, and this is a software-synthesized voice. It's AI-driven. It's a crowdsourced artist. It's not real, but in fact, it is for all intents and purposes. There's actually someone like that out there right now, an artist called Hetsuni Miku. Yes, it's a Vocaloid, and there are more and more like that popping up. Another thing that's happening is holograms. Now, not so much the holograms that we see in concert, but these are online holograms that basically conjure up a virtual influencer. In other words, it's a social media CGI character, CGI meaning computer graphics. Yes, there's already one that's very popular, Little Makila. So all these things are happening, and we're seeing that it's changing our consumer patterns. First of all, the recommendations that we're getting, and second of all, it's revolving around the actual music and artists that we're consuming. So just be aware that the new artists or the new influencer that you might be digging may not be real at all. If you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. Don't forget about my online courses on mixing, production, branding, and music business success at bobbyosinskicourses.com. Also, get an expert analysis and objective opinion of your songs and mixes as a member of my Hitmakers Club. Go to hitmakersclub.com to learn more. Now, for a really long time, engineers who grew up in the analog world could not get used to digital. There were all sorts of complaints. There were all sorts of pushback from these engineers that just never felt that the sound was good enough. This has all changed in the last few years for a number of reasons. The biggest reason is that the digital audio workstations are a whole lot better. They do more. They feel more analog-like, and they can sound pretty darn close to analog. Same thing goes for plugins. Plugins used to be a facsimile of what the hardware was. It was sort of in the ballpark, but not quite there. Now it's really, really close. So much so that the differences aren't even worth the effort of pulling the hardware out to use it. The interfaces are better. Even the cheapest interface sounds a whole lot better than the most expensive one of 10 years ago. So right off the bat, going into the digital world and coming out of the digital world, 
you're getting a much better conversion and therefore it's a lot better sounding. Better work surfaces. Now we have analog-like work surfaces. So if you really want to push faders and turn knobs, it's certainly there for you at just about any price you can think of. A really big part of why classic analog mixers feel comfortable in the box is there's a lot more experience. These days we know how to drive digital. Surprisingly enough, if you drive it more like analog, it actually works a whole lot better. And now that everyone's figured that out, now we're finding that there's a lot less pushback for doing something in the box. On the other hand, there are many engineers that like a hybrid mixing situation. So the dedicated summing boxes are out there, again, at all different price ranges, all different types of sounds if you want it. And if you feel you want that analog sound, it's certainly there for you to get it. Perhaps the biggest thing, though, is client acceptance. These days, clients know how easy it is for you to make changes. And they demand those changes to be made if you're doing a mix for someone. So you can no longer rely on going back to all your analog gear, resetting it up, and having it come back a little wrong. Because doing it in the box, we can get instant recalls in no time at all, and that's what clients really want. Now, that also goes hand-in-hand with the budgets. These days, budgets are small enough that just about every engineer, every major mix engineer, has a studio in their home. And the whole idea is basically you have enough money that you can pay me or you can pay a studio. Well, we'll just go to my studio and I'll throw that in. So now it's become the norm that the budgets are small enough in most cases, unless you're an A-list artist, that now you have to watch your money and it's a whole lot easier to do that in our digital domain today. So you're finding that there's less pushback from even the classic engineers these days when it comes to mixing in the box. Of course, if you grew up mixing in the box, you really don't know the difference, so you're pretty comfortable already. Either way, it's a good time to be in the music business when it comes to digital audio. My guest this week is producer and engineer Gareth Jones who's a pioneer in the use of cutting-edge digital equipment, sampling technology, and synthesizers. He produced five albums for techno innovators Depeche Mode, six albums for synth-pop superstars Erasure, and many more. As the mixer of John Fox's seminal album, Metamatic, he realized that an artist could truly define his sound with electronics. Then, as co-producer of many of Depeche Mode's greatest works, he helped to create experimental music with global chart appeal. During the interview, we talked about taking advantage of unforeseen opportunities, his love of modular synthesis, life on the bleeding edge of technology, the appeal of Logic Pro, and much more. I spoke with Gareth from a studio that he was working at in France. Tell me about how you got started in the business. I got started in in the business. I got started with loads of passion, but no idea what to do. I, I, tried to, um, I tried to get a placement at a recording studio by writing letters to the studio, studios, which obviously doesn't really work. And then I managed to get a job as a junior kind of sound engineer at the BBC, which is our national state broadcaster. 
which was fantastic. I'm a huge fan of, of public service broadcasting anyway. Um, and I learned one end of a microphone from another kind of thing. got some very bad. And then I realized fairly quickly that they were going to only let me work on music in about 10 years. So, um, you know, it's, that's the kind of career path. And so I started doing like, uh, what do you call it? Moonlighting. I, I, I managed to get a, a break, a, a, a wonderful guy called Mike Feinsilver, who was, I believe, a, he was certainly a musician, possibly a bass player and a producer himself, had a tiny little eight-track, obviously analog, one-inch analog studio, um, and he gave me a break, really. Uh, he, he allowed me to come in and uh, do some sessions. And uh, that was really my start of my... Then I felt, when, I, when that happened, I felt I'd arrived, because I really wanted to be making music uh, with... I wanted to be recording music and, and um, working with bands and stuff. And so this was great. So for about six months, I did the, the radio job and the, and the studio job kind of in my time off. And then became apparent that I could get, uh, you know, manage, a, make a living, if you like, out of the freelance uh, eight-track work. So I left the radio station and devoted myself full-time to, to uh, the, the little eight-track studio, where I learned a hell of a lot. Actually, I mean, <clears throat> I'm kind of... Uh, my trajectory has been learning from the bands and the musicians that I've been able to work with. I, di I didn't have the trajectory where I was able to be an assistant in a, a, a grand studio where I could learn from all the great gurus, you know, engineers and producers. It was much more working with uh, bands and occasionally a producer came in. It was a tiny studio, um, but it had a bit of a reputation and some some people came through and I was working all the time and trying to hone my skills, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I'm similar to you. I started on an A-track, a one-inch A-track as well. Yeah. Yeah. Wonderful format. Yeah. Yeah. And it was really good training, especially as compared to now where you don't have to worry about many of those problems of tracks. And, and then you did. So uh, it was a different skill set. It's a, I find that, I mean, hey, everyone has their own journey, right, Bobby? But, yeah. but uh, for me, the uh, the uh, the work experience of, of of limited tracks has been like hugely helpful. I'm not, a, I'm not, you know, left to my own devices. If when I'm producing or or uh, when I'm making my own music, I'm not a 256 track guy. You know, it's just not my, it's not my skill set. It's not my style. It's not what I'm interested in, really. Obviously, if I'm mixing, it's a different thing. I take what's sent, and, and I do my best to to work my way through it. But, uh, no, it's a great, uh, you know, analogs. Are, but Brian Eno famously said, didn't he, anyone who romanticizes working on tape hasn't done it. Yes, <laughs> so, that's true. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it had its downsides, right? <laughs> I like to tell the story that, uh, oh, three or four years ago, I had an artist that insisted on using tape. And it was a miserable experience. And it was for the artist eventually as well, because it was, we'd run out of tracks. It's like, well, let's do another vocal track. Oh, sorry, can't do it. Yeah. You know, uh, or the band is hot and you want to do another take, but you have to roll it off and get another reel and they're not yeah, hot anymore. Yeah, or decide which takes you're going to erase and so on. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And, and I, I, I feel that. That has a certain tension as well that can be productive. But also, the, I mean, obviously... I love, I was, I'm a, like many of us of my generation, I was a very early adopter with the digital world. 
very early, very painful and expensive it was at the beginning. But I love the the uh, musical creativity of the of the computer as well. I feel it's an instrument, one of the instruments that I can be creative on or in. So this, you know, the sheer the arrangement, the instant arrangement possibilities, the wonderful access to to uh, you know a different sound, I mean, uh, plugins and spaces. It's hugely creative. The record I'm doing right now, the la- I did the last record I did with my friend, he's a huge analog nut. We did a, a tr- like a triple album on uh, analog tape with a band, his band, and it was super fun. And uh, we got there, but this record, we we I went straight into Logic. Uh, my preferred DAW is like doesn't matter. I went straight into Logic Audio, and it's just been a wonderful creative experience, you know. Well, I want to go into all those subjects in a second, but let's go to when you were in Berlin at Hansa. How did you get there? I got there, uh, like many things in my life, by luck, really, chance, fluke, whatever. I was, I met a, uh, through a, through a, I think through a contact through Tuxedo Moon, I met a German new, Neue Welle, New Wave, it was called, and the Deutsche Neue Welle band in the early 80s. And I got invited to co-produce an album for them, which we tracked in Vienna. Um, I was young and inexperienced and uh, not not very confident. I mean, I felt confident, but I, the inside I wasn't that confident. So I wanted to go back to London to a studio I knew to mix it. And the manager of the band said to me, that's fine, you can do that if you want, but before you do that, come and have a look at this studio in Berlin. Uh, obviously, the band lived in Berlin. The manager was in Berlin. It made more sense for them. So I said, yeah, of course, man. And he took me to show me the Hansa mix room, at the, at which um, at the time was a wonderfully high-tech SSL mix room. And uh, as a young engineer, I'd never worked on solid state, you know, and I, now I don't care, you know. But but back then, it was such a big deal. I walked in, and in about five seconds, I said, yep. I'll do it here. Thank you very much. You know, yeah. but it was awesome. I thought this is my chance to get my hands and ears around a solid state console. So, so it was a, so that's how it started. Uh, and then I did a couple, another couple of projects there. I fell in love with a wonderful creative uh, musician who I was working with in Berlin at the time and everything came together. Work. Uh, what's the opposite of work? Um, <laughs> Play. <laughs> home, home life, what do they call it? Yeah, yeah, yeah right. I right. don't know. <laughs> There's something for it, but work-life balance, yeah, work-life all came together, and I thought, okay, what a great opportunity to move to Berlin. Uh, I loved the studio. I, you know, I was in a, a creative and productive, wonderful relationship, so I, I, I kind of bit the, I, you know, bit the bullet and thought, you know, I was early, I was late 20s, 27, I think, I thought if I don't move now, this is an opportunity to move countries. And I felt if I don't do it now, when am I going to do it? So I moved and then, you know, the whole thing, I did a, the legendary Berlin trilogy with Depeche Mode in, we did always finish the records in Berlin. I met my friend Daniel in, in the studio where he was working with the birthday party and he was the record company boss. And I said, what about mixing? construction time again in the hands of mix room and he came up and had a look and said yeah it'd be great let's do it so 
everything came together really but all started by chance and with as so often in my life i resisted it at first bobby i was like no i don't no i don't want to mix in berlin i want to go back to london and you know yeah that's kind of the case yeah anything good that happens by chance you, you keep it at arm's length for a second I think. well i i i was resistant but you know um uh yeah now i'm much more open to uh i've learned to pay attention and i'm much more open to opportunity you know and and synchronicity it's very important to me how did you meet depeche mode oh it's an it's another it's another um uh you know uh resistant thing they they i i'd, I'd helped an artist i'd met in the eight track and generated a bit of money and he was a passionate studio user. This is John Fox from Ultravox. And he wanted to build his own studio because like many artists, he realized that he was faced with the uh, kind of escalating studio bills if he, if he, if he um, took the time he wanted to make his records. So he built his own studio and I helped and advised and as far as, far as I could, I was his engineer at the time. I'm, I mean, I look back and I think, well, Basically, we knew nothing, but, you know, <laughs> but we knew enough to build it, you know. And so it was a kind of a, he was a hip electronic musician, kind of minimalist. And uh, uh, Depeche were trying to make their difficult third album. And they were looking for a new studio. The record company, Daniel and the band were looking for a new studio to work in. And they'd heard about John Fox's studio because he was an electronic musician like them. And... Um, <clears throat> They came down to try it out, and uh, uh, John said, uh, "You should, uh, you know, do the, do this session. It's an interesting band." And I was like, I was a bit of a, a very alternative guy at the time. I'm still alternative, but uh, I was very locked in my own world at the time. I said, "I'm not doing that session, John. Uh, it's uh, they're on the rap bands on the radio. That's pop music. That's not my thing, you know." And so I turned it down. The demo session where they demoed the studio. And uh, fortunately for me, because I became great friends with Daniel and we're still friends to this day, very close friends and colleagues, they, they, the, the band, uh, the, the, the team loved the studio, but they didn't like the engineer that they'd been assigned. So John came to me again, he's my mentor, about five years older than me, and said, look, you really need to go and talk to these people. It's a, it's a cool thing, you know, it's a good label. We'd already heard Warm Leatherette, Daniel's legendary first single on Mute Records. We'd heard it in the studio and it blown our minds. So he said, go along and meet them, you know. And, of course, once we all met, you know, once I met them all face-to-face, -face, they were wonderfully uh, energetic and charming and creative individuals, artists, you know, and, and I felt very comfortable and, and at home. So, again, it's another example, Bobby, of what I'm trying to – again, something I – initially resisted you were at the forefront especially with depeche you you were at the forefront of everything digital everything that was cutting edge and i know how it, difficult it can be from being on the bleeding edge like that many times what was your experience uh, it was i mean there were a bunch of us obviously uh, out there you know all, all this new gear was arriving and and, and so I, I can't, you know, I, I can't claim to be the leader of the movement, but there's a bunch of, obviously everyone was very excited about it, very painful, actually, some of it was, but hugely creative, obviously. You know, the 
It's, uh, it's only people of uh, my age now can realise what life was like before the sampler. But, but you know, the sampler was clearly a, an incredible tool. In, you know, with, with the... the uh, it made light work of what had taken weeks to do in, with tape previously. So we, we, we were all very excited by the idea of being able to sample the world and make beats and melodies out of it. Um, but sync was a nightmare. Sync was a, the early digital sync. <clears throat> it wasn't so much the offset, which we could manage, but it was the jitter. The jitter was like horrific. So, and the, obviously we were kind of discovering this on the fly. So, so and we were trying to make tight uh, electronic music. We came from gates and CVs and 808s that were all very, very precise analog driven sync was for all its limitations was extremely tight. And the early d digital sync was very problematic. Um, hey, sync's still an issue. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it is, yeah. Even after all these years, it's a thing. Hey, it's a life's work sync. But, you know, so there were lo lots of excitement. The, the excitement far outweighed the challenges, you know. And yeah. I was very fortunate to be doing this kind of research work with clients who were also super interested in going down the path. So we had a real opportunity and funding on sessions in the studio to grow together to 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 pursue this what was then new technology well speaking of gates and cv i understand that you're really into modular synthesis these days i've had a renewed my love affair with uh, with the uh, analog with with modular yeah i'm like many people you know inspired by dita dupfer's um uh using the Eurorack format partly because um, it's vaguely affordable uh, in a way that the vintage modular isn't really affordable for someone like me anymore. And the, and the wonderful, uh, the, the wonderful boutique manufacturers of Moog and make noise and many, many others where, where even if the module goes faulty, we can send it back. Um, I found it. I'm not, I'm a not, I'm not a, a guitarist or I, I played keyboards for many years, very badly. I would never play keyboards to anyone. But I found a kind of home for my channeling of the cosmic musical spirit through the modular synthesis world, so which has been wonderfully liberating and uh, and creative for me. And it's something I use in my own music and projects, um, and obviously something I can bring to production as well because uh, everyone loves a modular synthesis. Oh, in my world, yeah. everyone loves a modular synthesizer. You know? yeah. It's really easy to go down the rabbit hole because there's so many different modules. Yeah. So for you, there must be X amount of basic modules that you always go to. Well, Bobby, I fell in love uh, with uh, Make Noise for some reason, which is a, a you know company based out of Asheville in North Carolina. Uh, I. I, partly because when I first looked at the modules that my friend had, I couldn't really understand the legending on them. Or the, they have this very um, idiosyncratic legending. And but as I pursued it, I thought, oh, this is stuff's all, all this stuff's really interesting. So my core, my core rack that I can pick up and take out the studio is almost exclusively make noise modules, um, which is a I don't know why. So, I mean, I love, I'm working now with my friend Jan and he's got a massive collection of modular, big modular synth wall. And it's super fun to explore the whole wall. 
but my some I think it's a it's like your choice of DAW in a way it's a very personal aesthetic thing it doesn't matter all the DAWs are awesome and loads of the modular stuff is awesome but if you find some kind of personal connection I don't know some I've, I understand from my guitarist friends they 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 find a special connection sometimes with a particular guitar and that's how they if you want you know channel musical spirit or express themselves or whatever you want to call it and and in a way it's the same for me with the with make noise i just found something that i loved and i pursued it and luckily i'm slightly budget limited so i can't get everything so <laughs> i'm happy to stay in the make noise corner yeah, you know? yeah. i haven't uh, mortgaged the house to uh, carry on you mentioned um logic you're a big logic user and I'm sure you've worked with most of the DAWs that are available. How did you come to calling that one your main workstation? Well, I, I guess it goes way back. I was a big fan of Notator on the Atari, which was a MIDI-only program, obviously. And then when audio became available in the computer, uh, I got a, a Studio Vision was the, uh, the, the company, Opcode and Studio Vision. That was amazing, and that was an amazing sequencer. And and I loved it, and because I I could get samples of audio, and then I guess I tried. To, what happened was in my my little studio in in London at some stage. It's very many years ago now, but I was using Cubase very happily. I knew the Cubase programmer Mark Badger, who's now deceased. Rest in peace, Mark. Um, but. At some stage, I hit some kind of problem with something really simple like MIDI machine control of a Fostex or something. And Logic solved the problem. And then I, so I continued in that, down that route. Um, I felt a nice connection back to, to Gerhard Lengeling, who I'd met already in Atari days. And it, uh, this is way before Apple, obviously. Yeah. Uh, and uh, when they were still making PC versions of Logic Audio. And somehow, again, it just connected. And I, I, it solved two or three problems in my studio, sync, MIDI machine control. Suddenly everything worked. And then I just stuck with it. And I, 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 at some stage, about 30 years ago, I think I decided I'm like, too old to learn any more DAW. I actually, I'm, I do love Ableton. I speak, I, a, a lot of my collaborative uh, creative work is my, uh, you know, uh, original compositions are done with colleagues who speak Pro Tools and Ableton, and then I speak Logic and Ableton. So Ableton is like a really great common ground where we can both sit down at the DAW and, and make it rock. You know, what's interesting about Ableton to me is that if you're used to being on a digital audio workstation from the beginning, and then you're presented with Ableton, it's kind of difficult to get your arms around because you're thinking differently about it. So how does that work for you? Because it seemed to work fairly easy for you if you use it a lot. My breakthrough with Ableton was going to the Arrange page and getting out of the Loops page. For a long time, I was, I was because the thing about Ableton was it has all these stacks of loops and scenes and shit. Um, for a long time, I wasn't really connecting to Ableton and, and uh, because I wasn't really that comfortable. A lot of the music I make is not that loopy. It's not like tiny snippets looped. And then I think it was at, at um, I was doing some kind of lectureship at, for, for um, Red Bull at, at an academy or something. 
And I watched a loads of the, excuse me, the kids, the super young, talented people using Ableton, and they were all in the arrange page. And I thought, ah, I can work. And then after that, it was easy. Because then in the arrange pages, like every other arrange page, like Pro Tools or Logic or Cubase, or like, you know, a bit like every other arrange page. Sure. So then I was able to dive in and really enjoy it. And almost all the work I do with my colleagues, Nick in Nick Hook in Spiritual Friendship and Chris Bono, I have a project with called Naus Alpha. We're always in the arrange page. We're never in the, the, the other page, whatever it's called, the loops page. We're always in the arrange page. And that's kind of easy for old school piano scroll music paper guys like me. <laughs> yeah, well, like me too. Okay, so that that's that a was, secret. That was my breakthrough. It was a big breakthrough, Bobby. It's good, good, quite good point. Good question. You know, before it was just theoretically interesting. I was like, yeah, whatever. That's quite clever. And I made, I found I made stacks of stuff in Ableton, but never finished it because mm. I always had all these scenes and loops and shit going, and I, but I never managed to break through to the next stage you know yeah yeah you have mentioned your music a number of times and i understand you have a new album that just came out or is it coming out is it out okay yeah, it came out uh, on the 18th actually digital only at the moment okay so doing new music and especially an album these days is a um an undertaking what prompted you to do that well i started you know after year like many producer engineers i suppose i don't i can't really speak for other people but i had loads of unfinished ideas always on my hard drive and what i about five years ago i started working with my friend nick hook and we made uh, an album by really just negotiate by pushing the critic out of the room and saying look let's not judge let's just make something and we loved it we both loved it. we didn't we had no money no budget. So we had to be very time efficient. And uh, he's in New York and I'm in London. So w when he came over or when I went over to him, and, you know, time was precious. We'd invested the flights and stuff. So, so that was a bit of a breakthrough, uh, collaborating, realizing, oh, actually I can finish stuff. And uh, that's an ongoing project. We're working on a new album now, our fourth album. And partly inspired by seeing him make a solo record, and uh, and helping a dear friend of mine, Pascal Gabriel, is another producer, made made a, made a solo record that I helped him mix. At the end, I felt, for some reason, in in, in I felt in 2019, I I said, okay, this year I, I need to make a solo project myself. I kind of made a contract with myself, and I told a couple of people. I mentioned it to my wife, and I mentioned it to another uh, record company boss friend of mine, and said. Oh, just very casually, oh, you know, I'm going to make a... And having kind of made this contract with myself, I I felt that that's what pushed me to finish, actually, because it's really easy to start anything. I had, as I said, like many hundreds of folders of stuff, but I just started afresh. And also, the power of the uh, the my workflow with the analog modular is uh, because uh, in, in a lot of us with... Um, analog modules, we build a patch. I mean, it gives us back something that we perhaps we wouldn't have expected. Obviously, we chose the modules and I've been a lifetime of experience to building the patch. And nevertheless, it's very surprising. It brings the, the name of my project is Electrogenetic. And I'm trying to reference with the name, the idea that the electronics gives birth to some of the ideas. Mm. So 
So it was the combination, really, of the power of recording jams, essentially jam sessions with patches that I built and the personal contract that I made with myself to, um, to complete. I would have felt like a real dick, Bobby, if I hadn't made it, you know, if I hadn't complete at the end of the year, if I hadn't done it. It kind of pushed me, you know. Okay, so one of the problems that newer producers, newer artists have when they're self-producing is the fact that they can never finish. And it's mostly because they get new ideas. Some of it is, well, it's not good enough yet. That being said, you're a pro. You've been doing this for a really long time. So beside the fact that maybe you had a deadline, because the deadline does fix all that, but... It's an imaginary deadline, though, really. I made a deadline up for myself, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But how did you overcome that? Well, I decided... As I said, when we started the Spiritual Friendship Project, we decided that we were not going to, that our job was to make the stuff and not judge it. Because if I'm in judgment mode, it's never going to be good enough. You know, there's some, let's face it, there is some pretty awesome music out there in the last thousand years. You know, so I, I put that aside. I, I, it's a humble offering from me. But the, the biggest challenge for me, actually, Bobby, was it because it was solo, I didn't have the inspiration and the the wonderful soundboard of working with someone else. You know, that was the big challenge. Um, I worked on a number of pieces. I definitely decided to stop judging and just make it anyway. And, and, and then whatever, you know, release it. And as for complete, so that the, the, the idea of it not being good enough, I'd, I'd long, I'd wrestled with that for 30 years and it shut me down. And that hadn't really worked for me. So I, I tried that one. And for 30, 35 years, I never finished anything. So I thought, well, that's not working. So let's forget about it not being good enough. Let's just make the shit and see what happens. And in, in, in terms of getting it finished, I guess I just put in the time every now and again. And I, because I made this commitment, actually, I was a bit blessed. That year was, in terms of commissioned work, was a bit bleak. I mean, I'm a freelancer of my whole life. I'm used to it. So in a way, the universe came back to me and said, well, you want time to make your own record? Well, there's not going to be many gigs this year, brother. So, so that as well was a, a, a gift from somewhere that actually I'm sitting there thinking, well, actually, I've got nothing on for three weeks. Well, get down the studio and work on that. And, you know, a lot of things start, all the modular jams I did, I tracked to stereo. So that's a massive commitment already. Yeah. So it's either good enough to build on or it's not. It wasn't like every element was stemmed out to a different input. Everything was tracked to stereo. And then I built layers on top of it as, as I felt as the spirit moved me. So, so that, was, uh, that helped as well. Because had the modular sessions been able to be reduced to individual sounds, it might it have taken forever. I'm a big, because of my early eight-track, background you know this commitment it's kind of suits me helps me get stuff finished so then i was able to i thought oh that, that. and all the time for me bobby i learned i do like watercolors as well but at a very enjoyable but very amateurish level and all the time i find if i make a watercolor and and look at it i think well that's that's rubbish and i might as well just throw it straight in the bin but if i just close the note the sketch pad and come back to it two days later, I look at it and think, oh, that's not too bad, you know. And then three days later, I might have an, oh, 
I'm really pleased with that. That's really good. Look, do you want to see my water? You know, yeah. and it was a bit, I adopted this kind of approach with the music. I'd make something and then I'd put it away. And then I'd come back and might play it like three weeks later and think, oh, that stereo gem, that's got something. It's too long, you know, and there needs an edit. And that stage by stage, I'd just build it up, you know. Yeah. But yeah. really the big thing was killing. My therapist says you don't, the killing the critic doesn't help. She's a big, big, uh, a proponent of negotiating with the critic. She says, we need to go, please leave the room for, for four hours critic whilst I just make something. Yeah. That's good. I like that. I like it. Yeah. Cause we all have that critic and that's what stops people from finishing. Yeah. It's as I said, Bobby, you know, it stopped me for many decades. Yeah. And I thought well, enough, this is enough now. Isn't it? When you're mixing, are you mixing solely in the box? No, I'm very, I'm the hybrid. I've got in my little shed uh, at, uh, at Strong Room, I've got a, like a, a, f a 14 channel fat busted where I've got a little analog chain on it with a clarifonic EQ and some tweakers, some clarifonic tweakers. So I've got a little analog summing amp and mix chain, which I love. When I'm mixing with Jan, we're starting tomorrow, we've got, we're mixing on a SSL console that in his, his mix room is. So we've, it's a room full of analog gear. So, which I like too, because it's like uh, my part of my history. Obviously, mixing in the box is awesome. You know, I've written another record with a friend of mine that we're just finishing where I'm going to stay in the box because I've got the feeling the record company are going to want some adjustments later. Yeah. <laughs> you know? yeah. So, you know, yeah. it's just so e efficient and it sounds awesome in the box, you know, for people of our experience and 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 uh, and our musicality, once you gain stage it properly in the box, there's, it's awesome. You know, it's big and wide. I mean, hey, it's not even a question anymore, is it? But you know, so I'm slightly hybrid for my commissioned work, unless someone says, "Hey, let's go to air and mix on the Montserrat console." Would you like? I'd say yes, please. You know, sure. But I do. I, I feel that my work has improved as well because of the mixing in the box. Cause I, I like uh, mixing an album. I like to get a good first mix of everything and then being able to go back and, and then think, Oh God, the, you know, the bass drum's not loud enough or something, you know, that's just wonderful to get to, 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 to get to a sweet spot. I, I love that. Ne leaving the client side of it out entirely. Obviously clients demand that it should be completely recallable, <laughs> but, but he, uh, but at, at a creative level, a personal level, I do feel my mixings, I feel I get to where I need to be better because I can put it away for a couple of days and then come back and go, oh, you know, a bit more reverb on the vocal be nice or whatever, you know. Yeah. Which was a big deal before, wasn't it? Yeah, sure was. Do you have a favorite mixing trick, a technique that maybe you pull out more often than not? I have the monitors at medium volume all the time now, so I really feel I know where the levels sit. I work on my barefoots, you know, about, seven, I don't know, I've got a dB meter on my phone. I used to mix a bit loud, I think, but I kind of have it sitting there about 75, it says about a meter from the monitors, you know, from inspired by the film guys, actually, yeah. who, who do a lot of massive dynamic work. And I, just having the monitors just sitting there at the same volume all day. I mean, I've got alternate monitors that I reference, but the main monitors just sitting there, I find that very helpful because I feel that I know where the bottom end needs to sit 
immediately automatically because that because that's how loud those speakers are you know yeah you found the the sweet spot of the speakers for frequency response as well yeah maybe yeah. maybe i have but I, and I, i've also it's also like a personal calibration i found a calibration for me where i know I, you know if it's not if it's supposed to be raucous and it's not raucous at that volume i know that i need to do more work you know yeah, yeah. or if it's supposed to be warm and subby but it's you know do you have any favorite plugins that you tend to use i've just gone nuts for plugin alliance actually the that it's another subscription model it's a new di- new discovery for me i mean obviously like everyone i'm a huge uad fan i've got you know massive i've got a great relationship with uad and i'm a huge admirer of their work but some but the plugin alliance the whole i mean i'm still exploring it i'm enjoying that very much i mean i've got it's like you know like ever i just got so many plugins i don't know it's just ridiculous really i've got my friends in poland psp i've been an early ad- i love their saturation modeling yeah yeah the infinity strip that they just made i really like they just added saturation to it i'm excited to try that tomorrow i haven't tried the saturation module in their infinity strip yeah great guys you know as yeah. well and i've been feel i've been with them forever because i was a very early adopter of vintage warmer which was one of the early real saturators in in digital i was like oh this is great you know that's my favorite it's on my mix bus every single time almost there you go yeah there you go i mean that that's that, that's their magic and uh you know i i love the uh, the great you know the great i mean rx is uh uh an indispensable tool yeah you know it has to be said yeah i mean we've all got access to the same tools now it's amazing and we're all working in the same 24 bit high window whatever it is you know it's very it's a very interesting times but it's funny the the playing field has leveled in in that regards so what you then hear is the creativity without having any of the other stuff in the way so to speak yeah and that, that's what that's what's wonderful about the digital revolution isn't it it gives it gives a lot of i mean obviously it's not it means you can be massively creative without having to get the money to go into capital records to to make your record you know to finish your mix or something yeah and it does it does and it's it's sobering really because it it does throw it throw the ball back in our court and say well you know it's up to you really that you've got all the tools at your disposal you know do your best mate <laughs> <laughs> last question gareth What's the best piece of business advice that maybe somebody imparted to you or maybe you learned along the way? Well, apart from the obvious of getting the invoice in early <laughs> and doing your taxes, that's like really super important. A long time ago, as simple as and, and it applies in life as well as business, I suppose I would say if you say, you know, if you commit to doing something, then do it. And what happened to me a very long time ago, someone phoned me up and asked me to do something and i said yes on the friday and on the i was living in germany at the time the germans are very correct about business i i feel and which is a good thing i learned a lot from my time in germany and on monday i thought oh that was a bit cheap what i said to him and on monday i phoned him back and said look man you know this is not really worth and he said but we agreed though on friday and that kind of stuck with me this is i can't even remember the project or the man's name but it kind of stuck i thought actually man we made an agreement you know just like you and i we said we'll chat at 10 p.m. european time you know what we both showed up yeah 
I think that's hugely important in business. If we say we're going to do something, let's just do it. Thanks for listening and being in my inner circle. Remember, if you have any questions or comments, you can send them to questions at bobbyosinski.com. To listen to other episodes of Bobby Osinski's Inner Circle, go to bobbyosinski.com and select the podcast tab, or go to bobbyownercircle.com, or you can find it on iTunes, Stitcher, Mixcloud, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Deezer, TuneIn Radio, Radio Public, and Podbean. At bobbyosinski.com and bobbyownercircle.com, you'll also find a sign-up form for my newsletter and for alerts for new podcasts. This is Bobby Osinski. I will see you next time. Bye.